What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hi guys, I'm Giselle. And I'm Leo. And And welcome welcome to to Crimes and Cannabis. A true crime podcast where we enjoy some of the best herbs Arizona has to offer while diving into some crazy true crime stories. This podcast contains talk about violence, sexual abuse, child abuse, rape, and a ton of other horrible things, so listener discretion is always advised. What is up, amigos? How are y'all doing? I hope everyone is wonderful. I am doing fantastic. And how about you, Leo? Sleepy. (laughs) I just woke him up from a nap, so he hasn't he hasn't defrosted yet. (laughs) But regardless, we are golden. Um, Today we're smoking on some of that stuff where like you just go to your plug and pick up the weed, and you don't really know what the strain is, but you just bomb and you're high so (laughs) i'm high i'm happy and i'm ready to get into another axe murder story we are going even further back in time than last time all the way back to 1912 however this time we are going to be back home in the united states oh did you ever watch that movie it's 1912 i don't think i've seen that Oh, it's about a guy who tells his son to help him uh, to murder his wife. No, never seen it. Is it it good? Oh, yeah, it's real good. We'll have to watch it. (laughs) But this is another massacre that has never been solved, and it's been on the minds of so many people since then. Honestly, it's probably one of the most popular, oldest true crime murder mysteries around. What? Um, I did mention it last time in episode 12, and you guys probably know exactly which case I'm talking about. It's oh, the, the Velisca ass murders. Like, oh, what? What'd you say? The train guy? The, well, yeah. The train guy, Velisca axe murders. Oh. It's all kind of related. So, yeah, I'm definitely going back to the man on the train. Um, I was actually just going to get into the sources. So, we're just going to jump right into the case today, um, unless you have anything you want to say, Leo. Nope. per usual um but all the sources that i used of course will be linked right below the episode description but the three that i'm gonna mention that were super helpful with all the information for this case were of course the book that leo just mentioned the man from the train by bill james Um, i talked about it last episode and you guys please go read it such a great book and so detailed like for a nonfiction book he has so much shit in there Secondly, Morbin has a two-part episode on this case and all the cases listed in the book that I just mentioned. Also, so good. Um, You guys should already know that Morbin is like one of my favorite podcasts, so I'll probably recommend them a lot. (laughs) lot. Um, But lastly, the podcast called True Crime All the Time also has a really good episode on this, so go check them out as well. Um, Very intuitive name. True Crime All the Time. Yeah, I I love their podcast. I think they have another podcast too, but I can't think of the second one they have, but they're awesome. Um, But of course, everything else will be listed at the bottom. There should be links that you can click if you're more interested in, you know, getting more knowledge about this case. So, and if not, just give us a rating. (laughs) Let's get in it. But a lot like last time, 
Unfortunately, information on the specifics of the lives of the victims is very scarce because one, we're even further back in the 1910s. Yeah. And two, this town was extremely small, just like Hinterkaifeck. Yeah, so people probably don't even read. What the hell am I gonna rap for? A lot I can't of, even read. Yeah, a lot of people were illiterate in this time. So yeah. um the town that we're talking about today is the town of Villisca, Iowa. According to census.gov, the population for Villisca in 1910 was a teeny bit over 2,000 people. Hmm. So super small by today's standards. Yeah. Um, back in those days, though, this was actually considered a city. Um okay. But still very small by comparison. Yeah. Excuse you. Like Tucson is a small city and we have a lot of people. Yeah. <laughs> I don't I even know many. how many, but a lot. Villisca was known as a very chill place with little to no crime. In fact, even though this was well before national prohibition started in 1919, Villisca was already legally a dry community. So the whack. people here weren't even getting wasted. Whack. Yeah, and like, what else whack. were you going to do back then? So like, yeah. give me some wine, hell? bitch. You better give me some goddamn drinks right now. <laughs> and Leo doesn't even drink, so that tells you guys a lot. <laughs> you want to make it illegal? No. <laughs> but they were just living their lives out there, farming, going to church, and not worrying about crime in their neighborhoods. Now that we have the setting of this quaint little town, we'll talk a little bit about the family history that we have. The events leading up to the horrible crime. Mm -hmm. And then we'll get into the theories and possible suspects kind of like last time. Nice. Again, because this crazy murder of eight people, including oh children, is still unsolved. There have been tons of theories about it and what could have possibly happened. Great. The night that set these crazy events into motion was June 9th of 1912. This night was particularly memorable because even though the streetlights in Villisca had been built and working since 1888, due to a spat with the city and the power company, the streetlights were out on this night. Okay. Yeah. So the, the power company was like, fuck you guys and just turned them off. You don't want to pay it? Fine. Literally. So it's unclear whether this was an ongoing thing or whether it had just been turned off this particular night. But either way, it made the town eerily dark and super creepy. It's great. This type of darkness is something that people like me and you, Leo, and probably everyone listening, like, have never experienced. It's like pitch black dark. Pretty sure. I have. I don't know. In my video game. Oh, my God. Here we go. <laughs> um, but to be honest, I low-key, like, never want to experience this type of darkness. I'm kind of afraid yeah. of the dark. and it's so dark. Um, I was using my lantern. I could barely see in front of my lantern. I was like, okay, what the fuck am I doing? In your game? Yeah, yeah fuck yeah, that. Really I'm good. Like, I even sleep with my TV on, so. Yeah, that's weird. Yeah, 1912 is not for me. Yeah. But <laughs> about 8 p.m., the Moore family left their home to attend a Children's Day service at their local Presbyterian church. This may seem a little late for a service. However, it was summer. And much like in Arizona, the sunset is pretty late during the summer months. So me being me, I actually looked it up. And the sun didn't set until about 7.50 p.m. that day. Mm. So it's not too unusual to have a little bit of a later evening service. Yeah, but like, I shouldn't do. <laughs> You're so stupid. <laughs> well, they were like nothing but churchgoers. Like this Sunday, I didn't put any of this in my notes, but it was all about church. Like they went to church in the morning. They did Sunday school. They went to go visit with grandparents. Oh, and then they were back at church later church on. Day. Yeah, it was a church day for yeah. sure. Um, so yeah, but on this day, Josiah or JB Moore and his wife, Sarah, not only attended, but organized the service. And as I just mentioned a second ago, their whole family was in attendance that day. Mm -hmm. Josiah and Sarah were successful in their community with Josiah owning a local store called the Joe Moore implement store, which is adorable because it rhymes. Um, but they sold... Oh, okay. Yeah. They sold um, like farming equipment, like John Deere machinery and things like that to farms. Ew. Yeah. So people of the town described him as a likable businessman who never had problems with anyone. Well, that's kind of a lie. It was rumored after the murders that Josiah may have had issues with one person whose name was Frank Jones. 
but we'll get a little bit more into that when we talk about the possible theories. The Moors were a family of six, and their four children were Herman, Mary Catherine, Arthur, and Paul. Since this family was well-known and very well-liked all over town, their children often had other neighborhood kids over for playdates and like sleepovers and stuff. This Sunday was no different, and like I said earlier, they had been at church in the morning. So after this, prior to the children's service, Ina May and Lena Gertrude Stillinger had been hanging out at the house and playing with Mary Catherine Moore. The two Stillinger girls were supposed to go stay with their grandmother on this day. However, before the 8 p.m. service started, Josiah had phoned their house to ask if they could just come to the service with their family and then spend the night. Their older sister, Blanche, answered and gave the okay for this. This part I just have to mention is so wild because in some sources it said that they were afraid to walk to their grandma's house that night just because it was so pitch dark because the lights were out. Yeah, Yeah, and I I wish that someone would have just come pick them up or at least met them so that their lives could have been spared. Another crazy thing about this part is that imagine how the parents felt. Like they hadn't even given the okay for this. They hadn't even got to talk to their daughter or anything before she was brutally murdered. Like, I would have been so upset. But following Blanche's permission, the plan was to leave the Moore's house around 7, 7.30 p.m. to head out to the church. Everyone who was at the service saw the family and confirmed that they had definitely gone to the service. And around 9.30, 10 p.m., the family went home. The next-door neighbor of the Moore family, Mary Peckham, also states that she witnessed the family go to church and return home sometime around 9.45 or 10 that evening. Everything that followed seemed normal in the small farm town until the next morning on June 10, 1912, when the Moore family farm seemed way too quiet for 7 Mm a.m. As many of us can assume, living the farm life in 1912 was not easy And these families were literally up at the ass crack of dawn every single day. Yeah, because there was work to be done every single day. The Stillinger... Especially if you got chickens. Exactly. And they did have chickens, which we'll talk about in a second. But they have a lot of animals. Um, Also, again, the Stillinger girls were at the house. And their parents were concerned when they hadn't heard from their daughters in the morning. Yeah. Um, They even tried to call the farm, but they were not able to get an answer. Damn. As I was just saying, on the farm, the Moors had two horses, two cows, and some chickens. So by 7 a.m., they were all hungry and being restless. The chickens had even been left inside their coop, and they were going crazy. Wow. So that caught the attention of Mary Peckham, the neighbor. Mm -hmm. This was very unusual for the Moors because they took very good care of their farm. But like a good neighbor... State Farm is (laughs) saying. You know what's so funny? Is I literally have that written down. (laughs) How did I know you were going to say that? But just kidding. But yeah, so she went over to the farm and she let the chickens out of the coop. Um, After she did that, she knocked on the door of Josiah and Sarah Moore, but she got no response. Um, Because we're in 1912, I mean, everyone just kind of left their doors open. So she checked to see if it was unlocked um, and see if she was able to go in and check on them. But the doors were locked. So that made her even a little bit more worried because she was a really close neighbor to them and that wasn't like them. They never locked our doors. Exactly. So she grew a little bit worried and she rushed home after this um, and she called Ross Moore, who was Josiah's brother. Sheriff. Town (laughs) sheriff. (laughs) No, unfortunately he was not the sheriff, but he was Josiah's brother. He told her that he had not heard from the family that morning but that he would check in at the Joe Moore implement store that Josiah owned and operated to see if he was there. That's a pretty good name. I know. I love that name. Joe Moore implement store. It's great. It's great. I love it. I freaking love it. So anyways, Ed Selly, I think is how you say his name, um, was the clerk that was running the shop that morning. And he answered the phone when when Ross called him. He told Ross that he had not seen or heard from Josiah that morning. Because he had never shown up for work. Ed told Ross that he would run over to the Moore farm real quick just to check to make sure that everything was okay. After hanging up with the clerk, Ross started to get a hinky feeling in his stomach. 
real hinky. Getting hinky in here. Because this wasn't like his brother. Josiah was very responsible, and he had worked his way up to this large account with John Deere, a name that is even still used today. So he wouldn't just bail out on his daily job responsibilities. Realizing that something very serious could be going on, he decided to rush over to the Moore house too. When he got there, he found Mary and Ed there, and they had still been unable to locate the family. Ed had some things that he needed to work on and like some sales that he had to do back at the store. So he went back over there and left Ross to figure out what had happened to Josiah and his family. Luckily, Ross did have a key. Um, I'm not sure if it was like he had a spare key or if it was like a skeleton key. Because again, 19 fucking tens, you know, I'm sure it wasn't as detailed as now but anyways i got a key let's see fits. exactly like we don't know but he did have some type of key um so after they looked around the property and like banged on the windows and stuff they just let themselves in uh mary the helpful neighbor was still there and she was helping ross to look for the family still so at this point they both went inside in the book the man from the train bill james describes the setting of the house as being very dark still and reeking of a foul odor. The first room that Ross came across once inside was the parlor room and it was down the hall across the parlor as the name implies. What the heck is a parlor? A parlor is like a little family room is what I'm assuming. Like a little... Go to the parlor. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Exactly. So when he got to the parlor room, he opened the door and the first thing he saw was just blood everywhere. On the bed that was inside the room, he also saw the graphic scene of the two young Stillinger girls, bloody and obviously bludgeoned to death. Their faces had also been covered with some type of cloth. Ross and the neighbor immediately called the police to the scene. And after that, they waited outside, just taking in the shock of what they had just seen. Around this same time, the Stillinger parents were still growing more and more concerned about their daughters and unfortunately had not heard about the commotion at the farm. So they tried to call again. Now, back in the 1910s, the only way to make phone calls was with an operator. Oh, yeah. I'll plug you in. Yeah. So when Sarah Stillinger asked to be connected to the Moore farm, the operator told her, quote, everyone at that house is dead. Oh. Unquote. I'm sorry, what? All right. Yeah, like you're looking for your daughter and you get told that. Like, what a fucking way to put that. So that was like worse than any of the 911 operators that we've ever heard. <laughs> like, Thanks. what the fuck? What? And that's not 911, yeah, but still, like, operator. what the fuck? Yeah. So Hank Horton was the city marshal in Villisca. And following the call, he and two of his night watchmen rushed over to the Moore family farm. Night watchmen. That's what they were called. Oh, my gosh. Watchmen of the night. (laughs) Anyways, if you guys have not watched House of Dragons yet, like, please go watch it. Please go watch it. But anyways, back to Velisca. When Hank went into the house. He was sure to creep around quietly because he wasn't sure whether this murderer was still in there. Yeah. Even though it was 8 a.m., the house was completely dark inside. Plus it was locked. Well, they had opened it, remember? But it was locked before, so it could lock itself in there. Oh, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Because how did he lock it, right? Yeah. Exactly. So Horton noticed right away that every single window had been covered in the house so that no light was able to come through. Oh, yeah. (laughs) That's Leo's type of house. I like that. (laughs) Not only were the windows covered, but every single mirror and reflective surface was also. Weird, right? Yeah. So what could that possibly mean? Wackadoo. (laughs) I can't look at myself. (laughs) Yeah. So once Horton started in on his investigation, he found the unthinkable. He went in and out of each room of the house looking for the family by candlelight and discovered them all brutally slaughtered. In his book, Bill James describes the victims' heads as being beaten to a pulp 
And it was obvious that the blunt end of the axe had been used. Most of the skulls and faces of the victims had literally been demolished completely. Like their skeletal structure and everything along with it was just smashed to pieces. It said that even the eyeballs of one or two of the victims in the house were just completely obliterated. Like literally smashed to the point that they couldn't even be found. Yeah. Crazy as fuck. Coroners and experts who later come to examine the crime scene and the bodies estimate that each victim had been hit at least 20 times with the axe. Oh, my God. That's overkill for sure. It's wackadoo. Exactly. So running out of the horrific scene that Horton had just walked into, he goes up to Ross and tells him, quote, My God, Ross, there's been someone murdered in every bed. Jeez. Unquote. Got a family massacre here. By this time, not only Ross and the neighbor and the watchman were outside. Nope. The entire neighborhood was coming to see what was going on. Oh, Jesus Christ. Come on, you guys. Yeah. Get out of here. Literally. And as a reminder, this was a teeny town. Yeah. So. What's going on? Exactly. So, yeah, this axe murder was already the talk of the town. And for lack of better words, like the scene was turning into a complete spectacle. Hubbub. Fucking ridiculous. So from here, Hank Horton left the scene unprotected with a bunch of people all over the place. Wow. So not so smart. He's just like, stay out of here, you guys. Mm -hmm. But yeah, they didn't. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) But he went back into town to grab the town doctor and bring him over to start examining the bodies. Mm -hmm. When they returned to the house, of course, there were already people everywhere. Friends and family of the... Moors were there to see what all the commotion was about, and even the town minister had shown up. Okay, honestly, <laughs> yeah, literally. Reverend, go home. <laughs> After leaving Dr. Cooper in the house to start examining the bodies, he returned to the city to start making some phone calls. Hmm. He had given specific instructions to the night watchman, which remember, there was two of them, wow. to not let any unauthorized people into the house while he was getting more experts that could assist in the case. Oh, okay. But those instructions were very loosely enforced. Okay, god damn it. Hey, you can't go in there. Damn it. <laughs> Fuck another one. God damn it. <laughs> Literally. So Horton called in a ton of reinforcements to help because again, a town like Villisca was not used to this type of crime. I mean, who really is? But yeah. He called in the National Guard so they could bring in bloodhounds and basically guard the house. Okay. He also called in a private investigator named Thomas (laughs) Thomas O'Leary to help and called the county attorney and a few other local doctors to come and help. O'Leary, the Irish? Yes. It sounds like he was Irish. I don't know. But O'Leary definitely is an Irish name. So the National Guard showed up at the Moore House around noon that day, and it's estimated that anywhere between 50 and 100 people had already trampled all through the house between the hours of 9 and 12 before they got there. Are you freaking kidding? Yeah. So potentially fucking up any kind of evidence that may have been on the scene. Mm -hmm. Um, There isn't too much known about what happens between noon and 9 p.m., which I realize is a huge block. But that's when the bloodhounds finally show up from over 100 miles away. One thing we do know that happened is several coroners came to the house to start examining the victims. And the bodies were moved to like a makeshift morgue at the fire station. Uh, What's so crazy to me, and no doubt it's because I am alive in 2022 and not 1912. But this next part, I just can't get over. So the hounds get there, like I said, and immediately they start to try to track the scent of who could have committed these murders. Mm -hmm. And that's normal. Um, What's not normal is that while these dogs and the handlers were attempting to follow the scent, hundreds of the bystanders just casually followed them. God damn it. Like just going along with the surge of the scent. Let's get them. (laughs) Like literally like with pitchforks is what I'm picturing. Like what the fuck? So it just sounds fucking crazy to me, but yeah, it sounds like an old timey vibe. Yeah, literally. So regardless of how weird this was, the bloodhounds were able to track a scent out into the country up to the Nottaway River, but that's where the trail ended. Nottaway. 
I'm pretty sure that's how you say it. Not away. Not away? Who knows? Let me know, Not Iowa away. people. <laughs> but June 11th, 1912, which was the very next day, the coroner's jury was established and the cause of death for each victim began to be reviewed. I wasn't sure exactly what a coroner's jury was because I had never heard of that. Yeah, what? Um, but I just did a little bit of research on it and it resembles kind of like a grand jury from my understanding. Um, what a coroner's jury does is reviews all the evidence of the death and the cause of death evaluations or statements that were given by the coroner and then basically agrees or disagrees with the findings. That's kind of weird, but whatever. Yeah. So the coroners all believe that every single person in the Moore household on the night of the ninth had been murdered before or shortly after midnight. Every single victim was found in their beds as if they were asleep when the blunt end of that axe fell onto their head multiple times. Josiah was 43 years old. His wife, Sarah, was 39 when they were found beaten in their beds. Herman, Mary Catherine, Arthur Boyd, and Paul Vernon, the four more children, were all under the age of 12. Jeez. Ina May and Lena Gertrude Stillinger were also there, and they were also under the age of 12. Six baby children all lost their lives in the most horrible fashion that night. As I already mentioned, everyone's face had been beaten unrecognizable, and weirdly, everyone had been covered with a sheet or some type of cloth after the crime took place. Yeah, that's super weird. Yeah, it is very weird. And the murderer killed them all brutally and then took the time to place sheets or cloths over their bodies. Hey, no, he's a serial killer. Yes, exactly. And I was exactly. And in true crime, this is usually a big indication that the person might know the victims. Um, The thought process behind it being that the person after killing this person that they knew feels some type of remorse or even guilt and then attempts to cover it up so they don't have to continue to see what they had done. That's a theory here, but I'm not too fond of it. I don't really think that this person knew the family at all. Some other interesting things about the crime scene were that it seemed like Sarah and Josiah definitely got it the worst. Josiah had for sure been hit multiple times and way more than the rest of the family. Like, clearly a case of overkill. And that's interesting because why? Was it a hatred for Josiah or simply just because he was the man of the house and arguably the only threat? Josiah's pop-pop? Yeah. Yeah, so who really knows? I think it could be both of those. Um, Sarah's injuries were also interesting because it was obvious that she had been hit with the sharp end of the axe at least once. So she was the only one that was hit with the sharp end. Which in itself is weird because getting an axe out of someone's skull can't be easy. So, yeah, strange. Also, weirdly, it seemed to doctors and coroners that the killer had systematically went through and hit each member of the family like once or twice and then circled back and just completely went in on them and started hitting them like multiple times. And then, like I said, hitting Sarah with a sharp end. This killer was using so much power and force for this second set of swings that there were literally chop marks on the ceiling from him bringing the axe up over his head and then down onto Josiah's head. Yeah, fucking nuts. And this also made investigators wonder if the killer could have been a little bit on the shorter side because the ceiling was a little bit lower upstairs and someone who was like tall wouldn't have been able to swing the axe up without like literally being stopped by the ceiling. Right. So this will come back. So just hold on to that little nugget. The Hobbit. It was a hobbit. (laughs) I already said the windows, mirrors, and all the reflective surfaces were covered, but why? The windows we can assume were covered for a couple of reasons. One, and probably the most obvious, was to make sure that no one would be able to see into the house while the murder was in progress. However, if you remember from the beginning, this darkness was unreal. And the lights were out all over the town. The book describes it as medieval darkness. So honestly, I don't think that Leo or myself could really comprehend it. I mean, Leo can because of his video game. But (laughs) 
With this being said, I don't really think that the window covering would necessarily be to hide the crime because we're on a pitch dark farm with probably little, if any, neighbors with an eye shot. Yeah. So I kind of highly doubt that was the reason. A second reason, and I think the more likely, was that the killer knew that this was a farm family who would be up early in the morning and that people would notice if they were missing. Right. I think he covered the windows to make sure that when people came over looking for the family, they wouldn't be able to see inside. Oh, yeah, because it peeked through the window. Exactly. Like, seems more logical from a killer's perspective. Yeah. But for the mirrors and the reflective surfaces, there may be another explanation. So the first one could be similar to the one that I kind of mentioned with the family being covered with the cloth or sheets after their death. Um, covering the reflective surfaces could have been because he was ashamed of himself mm -hmm. and didn't want to see himself. Um, so that's a theory. One I find a little bit more interesting takes us back to Germany. So in the 1900s and maybe still today, who knows, um, but Germans in particular in Belgium would cover the mirrors of their houses with white cloths because it was believed that if there were dead bodies laying in your house in wake and you saw your reflection in the mirror, you would be the next person to die. So, yeah, so that's interesting. So Superstitious Germans. Yeah, so who knows if that's, that's what it is, but just interesting. To add to the interesting facts, there were also two kerosene lamps found in the house that were in a curious condition. So first, if we all don't know what a kerosene lamp is, just think of those like glass lamps that have the little fire on the side. I don't know exactly what that is. Okay, from your video games? Yep. <laughs> so now that we can all think of how they look, um, good. If not, just go over to Handy Dandy Google and search up a kerosene lamp. Yep. You'll find a good image there. But the reason I mentioned this is because in both rooms, with both lamps, the glass chimney that goes with the lamp was missing. And the lamps were left burning, which I doubt any family would do in this day and age. That's just a fire hazard. Right. And also curious, each wick had been cut in half. So as like, wow. yeah, it was to like cast a dimmer light oh. on the lamp. So that's interesting. Weird. Another strange finding was with one of the girls in the downstairs parlor room. Lena Stillinger was the only victim that had appeared to be in a different position than the rest of the family. In the book, they described the coroner's opinion as that Lena may have actually woken up during the attack. However, Elena and Ash present a different theory, and I think theirs is a little bit more accurate. So the way that Lena was found on the bed was kind of like halfway down the bed with her right arm up, up under her pillow. And then her leg hanging kind of out of the sheets and off of the bed, if you can picture that. Okay, so she kind of flopped there, right? So Elena thinks that she may have been killed and then kind of pulled off of the bed a little bit so that she could be sexually molested. Oh, yeah. Dang. So that's what that position sounds more like to me. Mm -hmm. Putting more credence into this theory was the fact that Lena had blood marks on the inside of her right knee. Oh, yep. Indicating, yeah, that the killer had probably grabbed her there. Okay. She was also missing her underwear. And it's believed that yeah. the murderer used them to clean off his hands and the axe handle. Because fibers of the lint from the underwear were found on the axe handle. Mm -hmm. Which was left inside the room. Jeez. The official report doesn't say that Lena had been sexually molested. However, it is said that the coroner told a private investigator later on that there was evidence that she had been. Don't want to say it. Yeah. And I mean, it's 1912. So he probably wanted to like keep the virtue of the young girls, you know, like that was a big thing back then. Mm -hmm. And so I think in a lot of cases, families didn't want that fact to come out just because they thought it would make their family look bad, but it, it obviously wouldn't. Name. Yeah. So another indication that there may have been some type of sexual motivation with Lena was that in the room of the young slaughtered girls was the weirdest fucking thing. Personally, I think this is the weirdest thing in the whole damn case. And if you know this case, you know exactly what I'm talking about. The fucking bacon. In the room, investigators located a two pound slab of bacon that was on the floor wrapped in a piece of cloth. All right. 
don't even get that much bacon. <laughs> yeah. What so the, the implication of this, well, he got it from the fridge oh, um, or oh, the yeah, freezer. Yeah. So, but the implication of this piece of evidence was that perhaps the killer had actually used it as a lubricant to. Gosh. Yeah. Gross. You smell what I'm stepping in. Um, the cloth made them think so even more because it would have been easier to grip it while he was. Yeah. So fucking gross. Why the idea that this was used for some type of masturbation tool is beyond me. Um, but that is a, a big belief. I mean, I guess in 1912 lubricant or like even lotion probably wasn't just readily available. Yeah. So, I mean, greasy bacon would definitely do the trick. Yeah. <laughs> what the fucking fuck, right? But kind of tied in with this, not really, but since we mentioned the axe, that weapon was also the Moore's weapon. Like they, it was the Moore families. Yeah. It was like there already. Exactly. And Ross was able to identify it like a hundred percent because there was a really distinctive chip that was on the blade. So he knew for a fact it was his brother's. Damn. This particular fact means again, just like last time. The killer didn't bring a weapon with him. Right. Instead, he stole one right out of the family's tool shed. So it sounds super familiar, right? Yep. Also, it's a ghost, ghost, ghost. <laughs> Same joke. Sorry, guys. We're lame. <laughs> but also super familiar is that it seems like the killer hung out and took his time after the murders. So they found a plate of food in the house that they believed to be the killers. Oh, my gosh. And there was also a bowl of bloody water just left sitting there, yeah. uh, which authorities believe was where the killer had washed his hands after bludgeoning all eight people. Yeah. So fucking weird. Gross. The last strange and unexplained finding at the Moore family home and farm was located in the barn. When searching around in there... Investigators found that there was a pile of hay that had a weird depression in it. it Somebody had been laying in it. Exactly. It was sunken in exactly like as someone had been laying in it. That's great. And if you lay down exactly where this pile of hay was, there was a hole in the barn wall that gave you a perfect eye shot of the Moore home. Oh, God. So there are some theories that have been floated around that this was precisely where the killer lay in wait just watching the Moore family before he acted out his vicious deed. Some others theorize that the killer was already in the main house, like hiding in a closet, just waiting for the family to get home from church. But we'll leave that opinion up to you guys because no one knows the truth. Yeah. <laughs> from, uh, at least they didn't chop off the heads. Yeah. I mean, basically like, Oh, you mean like to start to send them out to yeah, the Moore? The cops, yeah. <laughs> All right, here you go. That's all you need, right? <laughs> what? No, dude. Yeah, and in this case, unfortunately, I don't even think that was like an option. Yeah. So it's never an option. I don't understand. <laughs> I meant physically, like not morally. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> but from here, we'll start getting into the suspects and some of the theories around what may have happened on this tragic night. So the first person that I already mentioned earlier in the episode who was definitely considered as a suspect in this case was a man named Frank Jones. Frank and Josiah actually had worked together for something like seven years in the farm equipment industry and had recently had a falling out when Josiah left Frank's company to start up Joe Moore's implement store. Mm -hmm. um, that doesn't sound like it'd be a big deal, right? You should be happy for your friend. But the reason that Frank was so mad was because he took with him the fat paycheck of the John Deere contract. Oh. So essentially, Josiah had stolen this big, huge business deal from Frank and started up his own business. Dang. Which I think anyone would be kind of salty about Get that. Backstabbing some bitch. Yeah, exactly. Especially after working with someone for seven years. Like, I would, I would probably fucking be salty. I'm not going to lie. I would try to be happy, but I'll be fucking salty. <laughs> So Frank was obviously a prominent businessman in Villisca. And aside from owning the equipment business store that he had, he was also a state senator and had his own car dealership. Wow. Yeah. So that was pretty cool. And he was a very successful bloke. There's cars around there? Yeah. And when I say car dealership, me and you were thinking like a big, huge one that we see, you know, on 22nd over there or something. But this is probably like one car that he's selling or something. 
Oh, okay. Yeah, like it's not like a dealership. Get out of car. Yeah, or maybe like a couple of cars, a handful of cars, you know. Yeah. yeah. Um. So yes, he was successful, and after Josiah left and started his own business, they basically became rivalries because they were competitors in the same business. Mm. Um. So, and this wasn't the only thing that Frank was mad about with Josiah. I say this because Josiah was also being shady as fuck to his wife and having a whole ass affair with Frank's daughter-in-law. Oh, my God. Yeah. Seriously? Yeah. Josiah. So, Josiah was sleeping with the son of his rival's wife. Oh, my God. So, cool, cool, cool. Um, Even more of a reason to piss off Frank. But reason enough to axe murder the entire family, six children, and sexually assault one? Yeah. Uh, I don't know. Doesn't really sound like a good motive to me. This story does get a little bit more interesting, though, because remember in the beginning when the crime scene was initially being investigated, I told you guys that Horton had to call in detectives from other parts of the state and even private investigators to come and help just because they were not equipped for something like this. Well, one of these private eyes was named James Wilkerson, and he worked for the Burns Detective Agency. Right off the bat, he starts this claim that Frank Jones 100% did it, but not directly. So his theory was, was that Frank had paid someone off to commit these murders for him. Uh-huh. He stuck to this story for years and never backed down. Did he have any proof? No. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, he just, right. yeah. Just he did it. And that was that was that. Cool. So um, as I mentioned, Frank Jones was also a senator. And in 1916, he was up for reelection. Wilkerson pounced on this opportunity and released his theory to the public that Frank Jones had participated in the conspiracy of the murder of the Moore family. Yeah. Okay. So obviously, this was a brutal blow to Frank's election campaign. And he actually ended up losing the seat as governor. Damn. Yeah, which is sad because I really don't think that Frank had anything to do with this, to be honest. He does sound like a good victim to the public, but only because of how Wilkerson set the entire thing up. Right. So he literally went out and found a suspect that was already in jail for the axe murder of his own family and then started saying that he was the man that Frank Jones had hired to kill everyone on the, the Moore farm. Okay, shut up. Yeah, super far-fetched, but also super salacious. It sounded so good. But again, I personally do not think Frank or this guy, even though he did kill his own family, had anything to do with the Velisca murders. Frank Jones fought back, too. He was sick of Wilkerson's shit. And in September of 1916, Frank ended up suing Wilkerson for slander. Like, what the fuck, bro? Quit calling me a murderer of literal children. So he won and Wilkerson was forced to pay a fine, but that was it. And a lot of people never stopped thinking that Frank Jones was the killer. It's already out there, babe. Yeah, exactly. So it was, again, very sad because what a heavy weight to have to live with, like for the rest of your life. Yeah. It later came out, though, that James Wilkerson was a fucking fake and a con artist. Yeah, obviously. And that he tried to get reward money out of like tons of cases. So. We could probably take his word with a grain of salt. The second victim we'll get into is Reverend Lynn George Jacqueline Carey. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And honestly, he's a really good suspect. I don't know. But he was a preacher and he was at the fucking evening children's services on the night of the murders. Mm -hmm. So already sus because he didn't go to that church and he didn't live in Villisca. Oh, so what you doing there? Exactly. He was also known to be a fucking weirdo who liked young girls and was known to be a pervert. Yep. He's a preacher. He's a fiddler. (laughs) I mean, not all of them, but he was also not from the Villisca area. Like I said, he was from about 40 miles away and conveniently was on a train and out of the city by like 530 a.m. on the day the bodies were found. Of course. Of course you were. Yeah. So again, sus as fuck. Mm Mm-hmm. Also, it said that on this train, he met a couple and he was telling them about the the Velisca murders way before the bodies were even found. 
So we don't know how true this part is, though, because that couple later came back and said they couldn't remember exactly what day or time that he had told them this. Oh, then shut up then. Yeah, so could have been a false memory, which is super common, but kind of still sus, right? Um, This man was also on the shorter side. So they were thinking about the silly marks at the Velisca house and saying, hmm. You were pretty short. Yeah, he'd probably be the perfect size to make those marks. Other than all of this, which definitely makes him a great suspect already, um, two days before the murders, this motherfucker was caught being a nasty ass peeping Tom in Villisca. So, yeah, someone's husband caught him doing that. And he told people after the fact, like, yeah, he was in town being a fucking creep on my wife. So that didn't help prove his innocence at all. Also not helping him at all was that a week after the murders occurred, he hopped back on the train to Villisca and posed as a fucking Scotland Yard detective so that he could get access to the crime scene and the case evidence and shit. I get it. Yeah. Yeah. They're going to jail right now. Exactly. And any true crime person knows that anyone who intentionally puts themselves into the crime investigation is automatically a suspect as fuck. Um, Investigators look at this as a huge red flag nowadays. In the early 1900s, I don't know. But today, absolutely. Yeah, but like, how would they not recognize him? Like, no, you're not a, a Scottish whatever you just say. Exactly. You're, you're going to recognize that the cops don't recognize a lot of shit in this case. Yeah. Like, it doesn't make any sense. But another huge red flag here was that following the murders, Lynn George Jacqueline Carey sent Whoa, fucking bloody name. clothes to a dry cleaners where he lived back home. What? Yeah. And that wasn't explained. You just send the bloody clothes and say, can you please wash them for me? But why? Why were your fucking clothes bloody? Yeah. So, yeah. As if this guy isn't already creepy as fuck, in 1914, he was arrested for, yet again, being a perverted asshole. He put an ad in the newspaper to hire a woman stenographer. For those who might not know what that is, it's basically someone who, like, types and transcribes things for people. Sounds innocent enough. Like, why would you get arrested for that? Well, my friends, he told the woman that she would be required to sit there completely naked during the duration of her assignment. Exactly. And that's unacceptable today. But imagine telling a woman that in 1914, like they probably they probably thought he was like literally possessed by the devil or something. Yeah. (laughs) What the fuck? So once he was arrested, that's when the people really started to look into all of the circumstantial evidence that I just mentioned because they were like, okay, we have this creepy motherfucker and he fits the profile of someone who could have committed this crime. And he was in Villisca on the night of the murders. And he had bloody clothes. And he has everything. So could we have our guy? Hello. Well, in 1917, he was arrested again, but not for all eight murders. He was only charged with the murder of Lena Stillinger. Yeah, I don't. That makes no sense to me. I do not get it. But remember, she was the one that was found in the parlor room in a different position and apparently sexually molested. Mm -hmm. After being arrested, he fucking confessed. So slam dunk, right? Well, no. False confession. Uh, Yeah, because later on, he actually took his statement back and said that he had only confessed because the investigators had beat the shit out of him. Yeah, obviously. Yeah, so who knows what's true, but back in 1917, coerced confessions were still illegal. Yeah. So obviously, this confession was thrown out. What's crazy about this is that he actually went to trial two times for Lena's murder, but in the first trial, the jury was hung um, 11 to 1 in favor of acquittal. And in the second trial, he was completely acquitted and freed of the crime. Ah. So he never served any time for the murders and still claimed his innocence. Which is crazy as fuck because this dude must have just been like super unlucky if he wasn't the murderer. Because be fucking for real. Like so many things point to him. Stop it. So yeah, very, very good suspect. Um, The third and last suspect I'll discuss is the one that Bill James talks about in his book. And in my opinion, makes more sense as a serial killer. But I'll get more into the reasons why in just a little bit. So Bill James 
believes that the murderer responsible for the slaughtering in Villisca is also responsible for up to 30 to 100 other axe murders within the same time frame. Oh, my God. He believes that this killer used the railways or like the train tracks Mm -hmm. as a means of opportunity to find and murder his victims. I'm not going to go into a lot of detail about each one of those crimes because obviously that's a shit ton. Mm-hmm. Um, but Bill James links so many crimes to this guy. So like, like I said a million times, go read the fucking book. Um, I'm just going to mention a few and maybe I'll post the list of the suspected axe murders of this killer on our Instagram that he has in the book just to put it into perspective. But it's a shit ton. Yeah. Um, Bill James doesn't really give him a specific name. He kind of floats a couple of different suspects. Um, I'll go into one that he kind of leaned towards uh, at the end of this. But again, it's more like it's the man from the train as a general statement. Like this is a serial killer that no one knows about. We don't know who he is. So we're going to begin with the Meadows family. Um, on September 21st of 1909, the Meadow family lived in Hurley, Virginia. They were a family of six and they were found bludgeoned to death in their beds in very close proximity to a railroad track. Mm-hmm. March 11th, 1910. So a little less than a year later, the Hardy family who lived in Marshalltown, Iowa, were found being to death in their homes while they slept. Um, their house, again, was in extremely close proximity to a railroad track. Great. Now, during these early years, Bill James proposes that this unknown killer was getting like into his groove and kind of figuring out what his signatures are, if you will. Um, so in some of the earlier ones, he doesn't have like all the details lining up exactly how they do a little bit later. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'll go through all of them and you'll see what I mean. So the next one was on September 20th, 1911 in Colorado Springs, Colorado. May Alice Burnham and her two kids, Nellie, Emma, and John, were found murdered in their beds, beaten to death with an axe. They lived about 100 yards from the train track, and all three bodies were found dead in bed. Similar to Velisca, there was a bloody bowl of water left in the home where the killer had apparently washed his hands after committing the murders. Also, the young girl, Nellie, seemed to be placed in a different way than the other two, just like Lena at Velisca. Once these bodies were found and everyone started to come outside to see what had happened, neighbors started to notice that the next door neighbors weren't coming out. Once they started to think about it, they were like, hey, it's actually been a few days since we last saw them. So They went over there to check on him. And what they found was the Wayne family completely slaughtered right next door. Neighbors too. Exactly. So there were three victims in the Wayne family murders, the mom, the dad, and they had a baby daughter, all beaten with the blunt end of the axe. There was also a bowl full of bloody water and all the shades in the houses were drawn. The axe was found and it was believed to be used for both murders. Exactly. And it was also an axe that had been found in the first house. All the bodies were also partially covered with sheets. Police said that these murders were not connected at all, though. Yeah, like botched. What the fuck? It doesn't take a little bit more than common sense to see that these are fucking related. Like right next to each other. The same exact shit. The same weapon. What? Yeah. So... Right here is where the killer really sounds to me like he was starting to build himself up. Now we're going to October 1st, 1911 in Monmouth, Illinois. The Dawson family of three were found dead, murdered and beaten by an axe in close proximity to a railroad. In fact, they were only a quarter mile away from the train tracks. The daughter was placed in a different way than the family, and she was the third young girl to be found this way. All the victims were found in bed, murdered in their sleep, except for these girls. This is huge because it's a potential signature, Mm -hmm. just like everything else we've already mentioned. Such as, just like in the case of the Velisca family, all the blinds being drawn, doors being locked, 
and all the bodies having some type of sheet or cloth on them. These are signatures, people. Yeah, buddy. So this is already three cases with the same shit happening. And it takes three events to be named a serial killer. And not even two weeks later, we have a fourth. Great. October 15th of 1911 in Ellsworth, Kansas, a neighbor finds all the members of the Shoham family, five people, a mom, dad, and their three kids, murdered and beaten by an axe. All the victims were again found in their bed and assumed to be beaten in their sleep. The wife was moved or posed after death and the fourth woman to be found like this. All the windows were covered, doors locked, and all the bodies were covered with sheets again. There was also a bloody bowl of water where the killer was thought to wash his hands. And again, these murders occurred very, very close to a railroad. June 2nd, 1912, in Paola, Kansas, the Hudson family of two were found dead, covered with a sheet, and bludgeoned by an axe. The shades in the house were drawn, and in this one, the oil lamp without the chimney was also found. So this could have been something new that the killer was adding in yeah. to his signatures. And not even 10 days later, Villisca fucking happened. So how are these not connected? Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah, I stupid. even just listing them out, out loud like this, I'm just like, what the fuck? Hello. Like yeah. Checklist we're going through. Exactly. And exactly. Bill James literally lays it out like this. Quote. A family is murdered in their beds. The family lives within walking distance of the railroad track. The crime occurs near the hour of midnight. The crime is committed with the blunt side of an axe. The crime occurs in or near a small town, usually unincorporated with little or no regular police presence. Mm. I mean, presence, not presidents. Whatever. The crime occurs without any warning, without a robbery, and without any apparent motive. It is in no way clear or obvious who has committed the crime. Unquote. Oh. Like, I listed a few of them here, and there's so many more. Man. So I just don't understand. And again, just reading the book and how he pulls all this information together, it really seems like there's this unknown man that no one has ever learned who it is. Yeah, he's like, rolling around. It's crazy. Nice. Yeah, and by the end of the book... Bill James loosely connects a suspect who could possibly be the man on the train. Um, his name was Paul Mueller. Bill believes that he could be responsible for not only over 50, but like I said, maybe up to 100 axe murders in the U.S. And possibly even the ones at Hinter Kaifact as well. I personally don't think he's responsible for Hinter Kaifact. You guys know who I think is responsible. And if you don't, Go listen to that episode because it's pretty obvious. Right. However, if you read the book, Bill James makes a pretty good claim as to why Paul Mueller could have been an active serial killer here in the U.S. for years. One of the most interesting things that he puts in the book to me was that he actually researches the amount of entire family massacres with an axe in the United States between the years of 1890 and 1920. And why this is interesting to me is because these numbers really seem to spike up between 1898 and 1912. And then they remain relatively low, like before and after that. So could this be an indicator that there really was a serial killer running rampant? Maybe. We'll leave that up to you to decide and come to a conclusion on. Because even after all the research I've been doing, I still feel like I'm not 100% on board with Bill James's theory. Even though he does put together a lot of evidence for his claim. Right. And he did an amazing job with this book. Mm -hmm. I think that there definitely was a serial killer. I think we are definitely seeing signatures of one killer right. in multiple crime scenes. Mm -hmm. But I just don't know. Um, what do you guys think? Let us know. <laughs> definitely let us know. Uh, with Hinter Kaifak, I definitely had a little bit more certainty and like a clear motive for the reason I thought it was Lorenz. Yeah. But in this case, I'm at a complete loss. I have no clue who it could have been. Hmm. And that's why it's been unsolved for 100 years. Yeah. It's super crazy. 
fucking wild. So yeah, guys, that was the Velisca Axe Murders. Super crazy ass crime. A bunch of weird shit happening in it. Who the fuck knows what happened there? How is it unsolved? Yeah, I, I have years. no idea. Possibly because... A hundred people were fucking running all oh, over the crime yeah. scene, True. you know, Like, but it's just crazy. Um, again, let us know what you think and we will see you guys next time. Goodbye. But as always, let us know what you think. You can send suggestions or feedback to our Gmail at crimesncannabis at gmail.com. And that's N like the letter N, not the word and. Yeah. You can also find us on Facebook at Crimes and Cannabis Podcast or on Instagram at Crimes and Cannapod. If you're enjoying this show, please take a few seconds and give us a rating. And if you're feeling extra high and happy, leave a five-star review. It really helps us to grow our audience and get these crazy stories out there. But for now, we hope you stay high and we will see you next crime. Stay fast. <laughs> I hate you. <laughs> hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing the Godfather at ChumbaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus.